feet like the deers. He makes me tread on the high places. And amen.
would you please remain standing? I was reminded this morning of this particular passage from 1 Timothy chapter 2, in which Timothy is giving instructions in the church for how it's to conduct itself. And he makes this statement. First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And so to that end, I just invite you to bow with me in prayer this morning. Lord in heaven, we do come before you, your children. We love you, Father. We say thank you, Lord, for loving us. We recognize, as you've told us in the scriptures, that we only love because you first loved us. Lord, thank you for sending your son to die on the cross, to forgive us of our sins, to ransom us from a debt we could never owe, to adopt us into your family as your children. Lord, this morning we just pray for those who are in government positions, whether it be here in British Columbia, in Canada, in Ottawa, or even in the United States, Lord. We, we pray for our elected officials, our, our leaders, Lord, who are even now making decisions engaging in a political discussion in terms of how best to serve our province or the country in terms of fighting the pandemic, which we have been struggling with these past eight, nine months now. Father, we pray, God, that you would guide them, that you would give them wisdom. We pray this morning, Lord, for President Trump, and we ask that you would, if it's your will, just to continue to work in him, to heal him, Lord, to help him to recover from this COVID-19 pandemic, Lord. Father, in all these things, we pray that we would just continue to have the opportunity here to lead a quiet life, dignified, Lord, raising our kids to know you and worshiping you. We pray your blessing on this worship service this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. God bless you. And you may be seated. We're so glad to have you all here with us this morning. For those of you following along, on YouTube or the website or Facebook. Good morning. We welcome you. And for those of you who are joining in on the radio this morning, we welcome you as well. We have a couple of announcements that we just want to make you aware of this morning before we continue in our worship. First off, we want you to be mindful of the fact that next Sunday we will be celebrating communion. So we're going to be doing it a little differently. Yes, absolutely. We're excited for that. told you about this last Sunday. Obviously, you want to take a little bit of time to prepare yourself uh, to make sure that you're ready to participate in communion in a manner before that, as you stand before the Lord, is honoring to Him. And so uh, we just encourage you to take this, this next week, if there are any relationships that need reconciling, if there's any, anything you need to address before the Lord, we want to make sure you have ample time to do that. This next Sunday then, October the 11th, when you come through the door We'll be handing out communion for you. You're going to have two cups that are going to be stacked. One is going to have the bread, and then on top of that will be the cup. So you're going to come in, we're going to sing a song, and then right at the beginning of the service after that first song, we'll, we'll participate in, in communion. So just be mindful of that. Later today, there is going to be a great, great spiritual battle taking place right out here on our front sidewalk. Uh, we have folks from various churches around town who will be gathering here with the Kamloops Pro-Life Society. We will, from 2 to 3 p.m., be standing out on the sidewalk, holding up signs, 
insisting that all life is precious because God created all life. And it will indeed be a spiritual battle for many who are driving by. And it might even be challenging for some of us who might encounter hostility. All these things are part of the Christian life, but we are still called to bear witness to the truth that there's a God in heaven who made us, who made us special, who made us in his image and sent his son to die for us. And so I invite you to come and to join us this afternoon uh, from two to three. A couple of, uh, just a couple of cautionary sort of instructions that I'd like to pass along. Pro-Life Society is asking, I mean, we've done this every year and it's been a great time of fun. Obviously, this year is a little bit different. Pro-Life Society is asking that when you come to get your sign uh, and to sign in, that you wear a mask. There are a number of individuals from different churches who are elderly who are going to be here this afternoon, and of course, we don't want to run any risk of any kind of contagion or anything like that. You don't have to wear your mask the whole time, but they do ask that when you pick up the sign and when you drop off the sign at the end after we've been here an hour, that at both of those times when you approach the booth that you wear a mask. You don't need to worry about the signs being sterilized. They've all been thoroughly clean. And when you hand them back, when they take those signs back from you, they will again be sterilized after you turn them back in. When we're on the sidewalks, they're asking that we social distance from each other. Um, They ask that we do this regardless of whatever our personal opinion is, concerning the pandemic and how serious it is because we are presenting a witness. We're presenting a testimony. And so they're asking that we social distance, not necessarily because we might agree with it, but because we're trying to reach people who are driving by. We're trying to uh, impact them with, with the message of life. And so um, we don't want to do anything that might inadvertently bring a bad reputation or bring scorn back upon ourselves. So just bear that in mind. That'll be this afternoon again from 2 to 3. Also, this next week, Men's Bible Study is starting. And uh, also, I just want to make you aware of the the youth group event coming up on October 30th. It's a few weeks away now, but we're going to be having a costume party. I've already shared with the youth what the theme is and all of that. And so we just want to make you aware of that. And last but not least, Please mark on your calendars. We're a full four weeks out, but we wanted to make you aware we have our next quarterly business meeting on November the 1st, the first Sunday in November, where we will be welcoming into membership here quite a large number of new members. Praise God. Give them a hand. (laughs) So we're excited. For those of you new members who are joining, we're excited for you, and we look forward to welcoming you into this family. And so you'll want to be sure, this is going to be a special, a special business meeting, November the 1st, so be sure to mark that. And last but not least, this morning, I want you to know that we are in the company of a famous person. We, <laughs> he's stealing your thunder, Pastor Al, I don't, I'm not sure what to do about that. I was not referring to Tony Carmichael, but Tony, you're a famous person too, give him a hand. <laughs> no, I, I was actually talking about Pastor Al Hearn, and he's famous to us, and he's, he's getting a little bit wider recognition. Um, if you haven't heard the good word, he has published a book. And uh, yes, absolutely. Our accolades are absolutely in order. You, you and I both know he's been working on this for the last year or more so, actually, quite a long time now, and, uh, and so uh, he has it. It's finished. It's been published, 
and uh, there will be copies available after the worship service. If you're curious to pick up a copy, come find Pastor Al over here in the fireside room, and he's going to be doing a book signing as well. So this is official, okay? This is real. So be sure to find Pastor Al. The book is um, a story about Mabel Hearn. And it's about growing up on, on the prairies and just the, all of the different, uh, different things that, uh, that she struggled through. And so I uh, just want to make sure that uh, it's a, you sh- I read the first two chapters. You, you definitely want to pick up a coffee. It's interesting. I, I, I obviously had to get ready for church today, so I didn't keep reading last night. But it's, uh, it was pretty good so far, like the first little bit that I got to read there. So you be sure to come find Pastor Al after the worship service. And, uh, oh, yeah. There you, there you go. So for those of you watching online or listening on the radio, just to repeat that for your benefit, uh, if you do not have access to the internet, of course, if you're watching online, that's not you. But for those of you following along on the radio, if you do not have access to the internet, uh, Pastor Al will have copies here available for you to purchase, um, or you can obviously phone him at home and, and touch base with him. And for those of you who are, who are tech savvy, who do have the internet, you can, there, there is a link where you can order your own copy online. So just want to make sure that you're all aware of that. We want to welcome a couple of special guests in the house this morning. Uh, we have had visiting with us for a number of weeks now, uh, Don and Judy Hebert. Would you please welcome Don and Judy this morning? And we welcome back Kim from last week. Give Kim a hand this morning. We're glad to have you guys with us. And then David Bird is visiting with us this morning from Chase. Would you give David a warm welcome? And a lady who really needs no introduction. I don't think we could fairly call her a guest, but someone that is... Her kids are obviously enrolled in our school. She's been here a number of times, a sister from over at Christ Community Church, somebody we've been praying for for a number of months. Would you please welcome Erin Douglas this morning? She's up and about and, and feeling much better, feeling great. And so we're, we're glad to have you here worshiping with us this morning. And that about does it for announcements. At this point in the worship service, this is the time that we normally pause to reflect on all the goodness that God has blessed us with, and of course, to take up an offering. And so we will not actually be taking up an offering this morning, but we do want to pray and thank the Lord for what he's given us. Just remind you that uh, if you have your offering here with us this morning, after the worship service is over, you can drop it off in the back of the sanctuary or in the back of the fireside room. You'll find a little drop box there. For those of you who are following online, there's a link. There's a button in the lower left corner of your web screen, and uh, you can click on that, and you can arrange to give that way. Let's just take this moment and pause and thank God for all of his blessings on our life. Would you please bow with me in prayer? Father in heaven, we just say thank you, Lord. You are, God, you are kind to us beyond measure. You bestow your love upon us, and this could not be made more clearer than in the giving of your own son to die in our place, the death that we deserved to die in order to take away our sins, in order that we could be forgiven. Father, this morning as we worship you, we are reminded once again that because Christ died and more so that he rose from the dead, we too have been set free from the bondage of death. 
Lord, you said in your word in John chapter 11 that if anyone would believe in you, though he die, yet shall he live. And we praise you this morning that you have a plan and a purpose for us that goes beyond this life and that we have in your son the hope of resurrection. God, we just say thank you for that. There are so many around the world, Lord, that do not know the gospel, that have not had the opportunity to hear this good news. And we pray this morning, Lord, that as we give back to you, out of the abundance of everything that you've given to us, we pray that you take this humble offering, that you'd bless it, that you'd multiply it, Lord, and that you would use it to proclaim the good news that in Christ we all can be set free from sin and from the curse, the sting of sin, which is death. God, we pray that good news would go forth to the ends of the earth, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like to invite you to stand this morning as we continue in our worship service, and I'd like to invite Ramey Dykstra to come. And I'm asking you to stand as you are able in honor of the reading of the God's word. I'm inviting Ramey to come and, and to share God's scripture with us this morning. Would you please come, Ramey? Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 17, verses 22 to 34. So Paul, standing in the midst of Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring, being then God's offspring, We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. 
you may be seated. I invite you to turn with me in your Bible stacks, chapter 17. We are finishing out the chapter this morning, looking at the last piece of Paul's message to the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. As you're turning to Acts chapter 17, I also invite you to find your way to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and Revelation. We're going to be in Revelation as well, looking at, um, looking at the tail end of Revelation chapter 21. So find your way, I beg your pardon, chapter 20. Find your way to Revelation chapter 20. We're going to be looking at both of those passages before we're, before we're through this morning. Guys, I don't know about you, but because of Christ, I'm never going to die. Isn't that great news? The world doesn't understand that news, and as we're looking here again for the final time at the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, they don't understand that good news. Before we jump into the text, let's uh, pause for a moment and let's bow our heads and thank the Lord and ask him to help us. Would you, would you please pray with me? Father in heaven, we just say thank you once again for having a purpose and for being victorious in accomplishing that purpose. There was no obstacle that you were going to be held up by. There was no scheme or plan which man could devise which would stop you in your purposes. You, Lord, are victorious. And we see here in the preaching of Paul in Acts chapter 17 that your, your goal has been to redeem a people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. To rescue us from the curse of death. To restore us in resurrected and glorified bodies. That we might enjoy fellowship with you for all eternity. Lord, we pray that your spirit would illuminate the text before us this morning. That you would give us understanding. And through that understanding that you would strengthen our faith, Lord. And if there are any here who still live under the fear of death. If there are any gathered together with us this morning or following along online who still live this life as though this is all there is, we pray, Lord, that you would open their eyes to see that there is so much more. And we pray, God, that you would bring them to salvation in your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray this morning. Amen. A number of years ago, uh, around about 2004, 2005, uh, my grandfather passed away. And I was asked as a seminary student to officiate at his funeral to give the eulogy as well as the message that morning. My grandfather was buried in a cemetery just outside of Wichita, uh, sorry, just outside of Miami, Miami, Oklahoma. If Schmitty were here this morning, he would know exactly where that is. If Orville Schmidt was here, he... Oh, he is here. Hey, hey, Orville, you know right where that is, don't you? Yeah. Miami, Oklahoma. And we had a graveside service for him, and I recall going out to the graveside, and, and we were doing the graveside. We were having a few moments there, and um, there was a bit of an interval while we were waiting for other uh, members of the funeral party to arrive at, at, before we started the graveside part of the funeral service, and I wanted to just take a few moments to gather my thoughts, and so I began to walk away from the cemetery into a grassy field that was there by the cemetery, and as I began to walk through the grassy field, uh, there was the section of the cemetery that was mowed, that was well-maintained, and there were, there were flowers on a number of different tombstones, and as I walked out into this grassy field, 
I tripped over a rock, and I thought, oh, man, there's a rock here in the middle of this tall grass, and, and it, but it felt unusual. It didn't feel like a normal rock. It felt almost like squared off, and so I took my foot, and I parted the grass over so I could see what it was I had tripped on, and lo and behold, there was a tombstone there, and the man's name upon the tombstone was Robert Bowersaw. The inscription said 1922 to 1985, which meant that he died relatively young, 63 years old. Just below the dates of his life, this inscription was written, Beloved by Christ. And as I looked at that tombstone, I thought, well, isn't that the truth of it? Because you look around this grassy field, and nobody else would know that this was here. The grass is overgrown. There are no flowers decorating that tombstone. And he is, for all practical intents and purposes, utterly and totally forgotten. And as I continue to walk around that, tomb, that, that particular tombstone, I found that there were actually a great number of other tombstones in this unkept field. And the reality began to sink in on me that this was an older section of the cemetery that whoever these people were, they were no longer visited by loved ones. They were no longer remembered by friends. They had been completely forgotten. But Robert Bowersaw's tomb still proclaimed this truth, beloved by Christ. As I sat there and pondered that, getting more and more emotional, thinking, come on, Clay, can't pull it together. You're going to give the eulogy for your grandfather here in a few minutes. A lady approached me, and she said, isn't it really sad that no one comes here anymore? And I said to her, not that sad. If only men visited here, then indeed it would be a tragedy. But this man is remembered by Jesus. What I want you to understand this morning, church, is that in Christ... Though each one of us faces the certainty of a physical death in Christ, in the cross, and in the resurrection, we also have the equal certainty of coming back out of the grave. Amen. I'm reflecting on Robert Bowersaw this morning, and as I was considering this other lady and her comment, isn't it sad, isn't it tragic that Robert Bowersaw is here, that all these people are here and that no one remembers them? I agree that if it were up to the world, if all that was to be remembered was remembered by the world, then indeed it would be a great tragedy that so many have come, lived, and died, and been utterly and totally forgotten. But it reminds me uh, more than anything else of that book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament in which Solomon proclaimed over and over and over again throughout the book of Ecclesiastes that this life that we're living is a life of vanity and that if all that matters is everything that is done and uses this expression over 40 times, if all that is done is simply done under the sun, then it is a vanity. Of course, the author is inviting you to consider that there is something beyond the sun that might make this life meaningful. But under the sun, he uses this Hebrew word, hevel. It is vanity, vanity, vanity. This word hevel means a number of different things in the book of Ecclesiastes, but there are two prominent ideas behind this word which stand out over and over again. Number one, that life is absurd. 
It's full of contradictions. It is full of opposites. As Solomon reflected back across the entirety of his lifetime, he realized that this world and that this life, all that we have, what we live, it is full of the experience of opposites. There are wolves and there are lambs. There are weeds and there are roses. There are sharks and there are kittens. There are tornadoes and there are gentle breezes. There is ugliness and there is beauty. There is the cruelty of death, but there is also the joy of a newborn baby being given light, being brought forth from the womb, being born. And so we have these opposites. And it seems ironic, it seems absurd indeed that you would have these two different things existing at the same time. And Solomon, reflecting on all of that, says it's Hevel, it's, it's vanity, it's absurd. The other way that he uses this word in the book of Ecclesiastes is to describe that the lives that we live under the sun are completely futile. They really co- accomplish, in the grand scheme of things, very little, very little. And this is perhaps the starkest way in which Solomon uses this word vanity in his book, He's suggesting that nothing is worthwhile, nothing outlasts us for long, that we are all utterly going to die and probably totally going to be forgotten. Very few of us will make it into any kind of a history book of any sort. And it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're Mother Teresa or Robert Picton, whether you're the greatest of saints or the cruelest of serial killers. We are all going to die. Whether you're a gospel minister or Charles Manson, you will die because death, death is inevitable. We're all going to die. We're all coming to the end. And the people who bury you, they will also one day die. In fact, the shovel that they use to dig your grave will one day rust and turn to dust. And they will die. Sure, they'll talk about you for a while. They'll bury you in the ground and They'll go to someone's house afterwards to have a, a memorial service to kind of talk about you and the kind of person that you were and how you were a friend to them. And they will almost certainly eat potato salad while they're there. I've shared this with you before. Potato salad, for 10 years straight now, based on popular surveys, the number one dish served at funeral receptions. So the odds are your friends will bury you and then reminisce over your life and what you meant to them while they're eating potato salad. And then they will die and you will be forgotten and most likely you will be buried in a grave with a tombstone in a field that is overgrown which will only be remembered amongst mankind when some poor sap walking along the tombstones accidentally kicks it and trips over it. Of course... That's all under the sun. In Acts chapter 17, the philosophers, the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers, in this context of absurdity and futility, as they're trying to find out what would make life meaningful, what would bring some pleasure or some happiness to life, as they're wrestling with all of these variables, but looking at it from the perspective only of what is done under the sun, they come to these radically different conclusions. If you're the Epicurean philosopher, you realize life is about pleasure. Let's just go out and live life to the fullest. 
Their mantra would have been similar to the hippies from the 60s. If it feels good, do it. We want pleasurable experiences. We want to have happiness. And so it doesn't matter the long-term consequences. Let's enjoy what we can right now in this moment. And the parallel, the contrast to them would be the Stoic philosophers. And of course, these were individuals that believed we shouldn't act on our passions, but we should consider the good and what the good looks like. But ultimately, they are living out their own uh, life, seeking their own pleasure, but they're finding it more in meditation on virtue, and yet what they conclude is virtuous is so far removed from what Christ calls good. Both lives, whether you're Epicurean, living for pleasure, or whether you're trying to meditate and trying to arrive at some understanding of what is virtuous, both are utterly futile because they're living their life in this this context that is under the sun that is completely devoid of any knowledge of Jesus. And it's into this context that Christ comes and he proclaims the resurrection. Here's something you haven't considered. You're trying to get the most that you can out of life because you believe falsely that this life is all that there is. And he proclaims the resurrection. In Acts chapter 17, he begins this. It's, it's right there at the very beginning of the passage. In verse 16, it says, While he was waiting for them in Athens, the spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue and with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. In verse 18, it says, Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because, as it says at the tail end of verse 18, he was preaching Jesus and he was preaching the resurrection. A foreign idea? You bet. Something that they have calculated and brought into their consideration of how to get the most out of life? No way. Not at all. And so I want to make three observations for you this morning about the resurrection and how we need to regard the resurrection, how we need to look at it. And so we're going to take a look specifically at, passage, at the passage beginning in verse 29, and we're going to look through to verse 31. Paul concludes his sermon to the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers, and he says, being then God's offspring, or being then God's children, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of men. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now, now... He commands all people, that is everyone, everywhere, to repent, to turn away from their sins, to turn away from living their lives how they think they ought to turn, how they ought to live their lives. He commands them to repent, verse 31, because he has fixed a day. There is a date on the calendar. There is an hour, there is an appointed time coming in which God will judge the world in righteousness. Notice this last phrase, by a man in whom, by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That last verse there, verse 31, I want you to look at that phrase, of this, of the coming judgment, the fact that it is a date that is fixed on the calendar, God has given us assurance of that by raising Jesus from 
the dead. If you look back through the whole book of Acts, as we've been preaching through it this whole time, there is undeniable evidence that as the apostles were preaching the gospel, as they were seeking to make the good news known, the resurrection was at the heart of their message. We don't have to die. There is more to this life than just this life. That's the message that they're proclaiming. And they're proclaiming that we can have that resurrection in Jesus Christ who died on the cross in order to forgive us of our sins, that because he came back from the dead, in him we also can come back from the dead. He makes this statement of this judgment, this final day in which we will all stand before God. He says we can be sure that this day is coming because it says God has given assurance to us by raising Jesus from the dead. And so in the apostolic preaching, whether you're looking here at Paul in Acts chapter 17 or Peter way back in Acts chapter 2, we see that the resurrection was a central figure. In Acts chapter 2 verse 24, Peter preaching at Pentecost, trying to persuade the Jews to believe in Christ, makes the statement, God raised him up, raised Jesus up, loosing the pangs of death because Peter says it was impossible for Jesus to be held by death. And just a few verses later, he follows that up and he says, look, this Jesus, God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. He says, we've all seen this. It's undeniable. Now listen, the the Pharisees and the high priests and the Sanhedrin and the religious establishment, they didn't want the focus to be taken off of them and put onto this ragtag, upstart mob of Jesus followers. So you can be sure that they didn't appreciate Peter's preaching at Pentecost. There he is in Solomon's portico, in the temple, preaching Christ. And I'm here to tell you, if it were false, it would have been real easy for them to shut this down. As Peter is up there preaching, believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus, death couldn't hold this guy. He's broken free from the tomb because he's the son of God. All they would have to do is go get the body and just chuck it up there on the stage. Go to the tomb where Jesus is laying dead, grab him, say, oh yeah, Peter, you're saying we should believe in Jesus Well, how do you explain this? And just pitch Christ's body up there on the stage. I'm here to tell you the movement is over before it even begins. But people, even though they're confronted by the undeniable fact, the incontrovertible evidence of Christ's resurrection, the scriptures tell us that they still will not believe. Jesus tells a parable in Luke chapter 16 about a rich man and a poor man. The poor man's name was Lazarus. The rich man lived and he died and he went, as Jesus tells the parable, to hell. Lazarus lived and died as a poor man and he went to heaven. And these two men begin to converse across this great divide. And, and the, the rich man says, send somebody back to warn my brothers because They're living sinful, wicked lives, and I am here in anguish and torment, and I do not want my brothers to die and come here where I am. And, of course, the response is, you know, they've got the law and the prophets. I mean, what more can we do? They've got the Bible. I mean, that's all that they really need. And the man in hell says, no. He says, no, no, no. He says, listen, if somebody would come back from the dead... If somebody would go back from the tomb and warn them, then they would believe in that. 
And the response comes, no. He says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, then neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The warning that Christ gives us is that we have the evidence, all the evidence that we need, that Christianity, that belief in Christ, that is the key to our salvation, the only key to our salvation. We have it given to us in incontrovertible and undeniable proof so so that when people deny it, when people reject it, they say, oh, show me your evidence. What Paul is saying here in Acts chapter 17 is, hey, God has given you all the evidence you need. When they say, show us more, show us more, give us more data, more evidence, it is not for a lack of evidence. It is the rebellion of their own hearts. What a powerful testimony. I mean, Christ lives. And again, I said this at the beginning of the sermon. I don't know about all of you. I know about most of you. I don't know about all of you, but I know that just as surely as the sun came up this morning, there will be a moment in which I will die physically. And there will be a moment, just like the sunrise this morning, in which I will come back resurrected physically in a new body. And you will too if you believe in Jesus. Jesus is the evidence. And if you don't believe in the evidence this morning, this is a reflection more on the rebellion of your heart than on some failure of our God on his part to try to convince you. This happened. It happened. The apostles who preached the resurrection, if you wanted to shut them up and shut them down, you just pitch the body up there onto the stage, and it's over. But that's not what happened. There was no body to pitch up on the stage because Jesus resurrected and ascended into heaven, as Acts chapter 1 makes perfectly clear to us. And they kept preaching, and when they were threatened with the prospect of death, when they were told, if you keep preaching in Jesus' name, we're going to kill you, they laughed and said, okay, like that's a big deal. They saw what happened to Christ when he was threatened and told to be quiet, and they saw that God saved him, that he rose, that he raised him from the dead, and they understood that that promise was there for them if they would hope in Christ. This is a game changer. The world that that he now exists, the life that we're living, this is not all that there is. I want you to think now with me on the second point, the second observation of the resurrection. As Paul makes clear here in the first part of verse 31, the resurrection places Jesus at the right hand of the Father, showing to all mankind all over the earth that God has entrusted all power and all authority and therefore all judgment into Christ's hands. You have a date on the calendar in which you will stand before the judge to give an account. And the judge is Jesus. Better hope in him as a savior because if you don't, you'll have him as your judge, jury, and executioner. Paul makes the statement here, that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, notice this, by a man whom he has appointed. (coughs) Excuse me. 
He has fixed a day. There is a date on the calendar in which we will be judged, and the man who is doing the judging is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul says. Elsewhere in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, don't flip, just listen. <clears throat> Got a little bit of dust in my throat this morning, beg your pardon. Elsewhere in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, the Apostle Paul makes this statement as he's introducing himself to the church in Rome. He says, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. What Paul is saying there is that God has appointed Jesus to have all power and all authority put into his hands, and he has testified to this fact to you and I by raising Christ from the dead. Every April or March, we all get together and we celebrate Easter. And the world likes to talk about chocolate eggs and Easter bunnies and little furry rabbits. We acknowledge on some level that really the bigger meaning behind Easter, what Christians are really celebrating and, and talking about, is that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And of course, you and I, we celebrate that, acknowledging fully what that means. But what the world doesn't fully grasp, what they don't understand when they're eating their little Cadbury bunny eggs and, and you know, hiding presents around the house and hiding Easter eggs around in the yard for the kids to find, is that what is actually being celebrated the world over here is that there is a man, a flesh and blood man, exactly like you and me, but not exactly like you and me, but a flesh and blood man, no different than us, whom all authority, all power has been given into his hands. Jesus will judge the world. Jesus will come back and he will reign sovereign over all aspects of this world. A date has been fixed in which that will happen. And Paul is saying, both in Acts chapter 17 as well as in Romans chapter 1, that God is making this perfectly clear to you by raising him from the dead. You and I, we're going to die. And you and I, we will only live if we hope in Christ. Christ died, and as Paul says, the pangs, as Peter says in Pentecost, the, the pangs of death could not hold him. It was impossible for him to be held by it. Why? How? And Paul says here, because he was the Son of God, not merely in name, not merely in title, not as some sort of abstract or symbolic concept. He was the Son of God, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, in power. And the Spirit testifies to this because Christ broke free from the grave. The grave could not hold him. He defeated the enemy, which up until this point in time, no one of us has ever been able to conquer. He conquered it which means he's the most powerful. And Paul says in Acts chapter 17 and in Romans chapter 1 that that makes him king. And as king, that means one opinion matters. One judgment is final. It is not yours. It is not mine. It is Christ's. As I look at the life of Christ, 
You know he died really young. 30 years of age. Approximately. I mean, you know, we, we, we're pretty sure it was about 30, 33. I beg your pardon, 33. He started ministry at 30, and then about 33 years of age he died, approximately. Do you think Christ had a bucket list? Let's just reflect on it for a moment. There's an awful lot that he never got to do. Never met a girl, never fell in love, never had kids, never raised a family, never bought a house. Scriptures are quite clear. It says the Son of Man is like the birds of the air. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man, Jesus says, has nowhere to lay his head. He didn't have anywhere to call home. So he had no wife, he had no kids, he had no house. He had no 401k retirement plan, no pension. What do you think Christ thought of the golden years of his life? I talk to people all the time who speak of things that they want to accomplish before they die. They talk about their bucket lists. I remember meeting a man on the bus one time. This is back in 2008 here in Kamloops. I was riding the city bus, and I sat down next to a fellow, and we got to talking, and he made the comment to me. I, I told him that I was from Texas. He, at that time, I had a little bit of a thicker accent. He picked up on it, and uh, I used the word y'all way too much at that point in time, and he, he noticed that I wasn't from around these parts, and so we got to talking about where I was from, and he made the statement to me. He said, you know, one of the things on my bucket list, I said, what's that? He says, I want to ride as a cowboy riding on a herd of cattle. And I said, really? And he said, yes. Now, I've seen that. And I'm thinking to myself, why would you ever want to do that? I mean, we have these romantic ideas of riding horseback. And, and I mean, it, there is some joy in it. Don't misunderstand me. But to spend all your waking moment of all your waking days bouncing up and down on this horse uh, with a bunch of cows that, you know, are not the most compliant, don't just go where you want them to go, through a perpetual dust storm. You know, we have only recently started wearing masks and, you know, N95 filters on our faces because of COVID-19. But uh, I actually grew up in a part of Texas where I knew cowboys who drove cattle back and forth across the prairies to different pastures to graze in. And one of my dear friends growing up, a deacon in my church, Sunset Canyon Baptist Church, a fellow by the name of George Menifee, I remember going to his house for dinner one night after he'd come in after riding on the range all day. And the first thing he did was he tore off a paper towel off the paper towel roll in the kitchen. He did not get a Kleenex because the Kleenex would not hold up to what was about to happen. That's my only guess. And he blew his nose, and I was horrified at what small bits of dirt and larger bits of dirt came out of his nose at the end of that day, having rode all day. So this man says to me on the bus, one of the things on my bucket list is to go down to Texas and ride on a, on a horse, ride herd. And I'm thinking to myself, the reason it's on your bucket list is because you're utterly ignorant of what that actually looks like. 
I mean, I didn't say that. You know, I'm nice. I'm, I'm, oh, that's very, I'm so complimented by that. Yes, Texas is a wonderful place. Ladies and gentlemen, we have things that we want to do in life that Jesus Christ never mentioned as being necessary. Whether we're riding herd on a bunch of cows and the heat of Texas breathing in all kinds of dust, or what I would consider to be the more reasonable sort of desires in life, such as swimming in the Pacific Ocean in Fiji or something like that, whether we're thinking of tropical paradises or whether we're thinking of wild and exciting experiences, we all tend to have this wanderlust. We want to go somewhere. We want to do something. We want to be someone. But I want us all to reflect back on our King and our Savior, the one whose opinion is final, the one whose judgment is absolute. Not once does he complain of a life that wasn't lived to the fullest. Not once does he ever suggest that there were things he was hoping to do, which, gee golly, he just never got to it because he was too busy saving the world. The Lord does not give us any example of a life that is not fulfilled if we would walk with him. As far as the Lord is concerned, as far as Paul is presenting it, as far as, Pe as, far as Peter is presenting it, there's one thing on the bucket list that we need to be striving after, and that's pursuing Jesus Christ for all that he is. And if you look at this passage in context, it's very obvious. I don't know about you, but I have often wished that I could go back to certain points in history whether it be World War II, or if I could have just been there in the Garden of Gethsemane when they came to arrest Jesus. And I tell myself, as I'm sure you do, when you're fantasizing about these sort of things, oh, if I had been there, I would have done better than Peter. I'd be like, no, you're not taking Jesus. And they would have had to kill me before they dragged Christ away. You know, you, you sort of imagine these wonderful scenarios. Oh, if I lived during World War II, I would have gone and enlisted, and I would have been a hero over in Normandy. You have these wild ideas about what your life might look like. Those ideas are not God's ideas. In context, Paul makes this incredible statement. Acts chapter 17, he says, he says in Acts chapter 17, verse 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. In other words, he has assigned you to your country, the place where you grew up, your nation. He has assigned you to your family. He has determined who your mom and your dad are going to be. He has assigned you to a particular point in time in history. And the goal for all of that, what God has on our bucket lists, is not that growing up in you know, 1980, 1990, 2010, whatever the case may be, we would long and dream to go somewhere else no, what God has purposed for all of us, where he has put us, is that he would be the one we would pursue. His plan for history, the place where he has put you, he has put you exactly where you are. He has given you that opportunity where you are as the best chance for you to find your way back home to him the Father. Don't long to be somewhere else. Don't tell yourself lies like, oh, if I were there in the garden, I would have been the hero. I would have stay, stood up and saved the day. Such things are just fanciful, hopeless fairy tales that could never possibly happen. 
But what can happen right where you are, exactly who you are, Christ died for you. And he desires that you should pursue him, that you should trust in him. And I want you to dream a little dream with me. If death is not the end, then what does life look like after we are raised from the dead? Put your finger there in Acts chapter 17 and flip with me to 1 Thessalonians. Paul, writing to the church at Thessalonica, seeks to encourage them. He wants them to be encouraged, and he makes this statement in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, brothers, we don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to lack an understanding of what awaits those of us who have hoped in Christ. That's what Paul says. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep. He uses a different term to describe people that are dead. He doesn't say they're dead because in Christ, they're not dead. They're, as he says, asleep. That is, there is a point in time, as far as Paul is speaking, in which they will come back from their slumber. Now, don't misunderstand. These people are dead. They are in heaven. But Paul uses this expression to describe the real status of things. They're not actually dead. They will come back from the dead. So he describes them as being asleep. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Proceed. What are you talking about, Paul? Proceed. Go where? Where are we going? What do you mean by that? He says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. He's speaking about the resurrection. And so his statement there is that people who are still alive, when Jesus comes back, we will not be glorified. We will not receive our resurrected eternal bodies before those who have fallen asleep. He says those who have fallen asleep, that is, those who have already died, they will go ahead of us. They will meet the Lord in the air. He says the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The point of this passage is that we would be encouraged. Paul's statement is, if you're discouraged, if you're kind of down, perhaps you need to be thinking more on what your life really is going to look like. We're all going to, we all experience disappointments and heartaches. We all will know sadness and missed opportunities. There's always been that job that we applied for, which we just didn't get. There's always been that friend that we wished we had spent more time with and then they passed away and we don't get to visit with them anymore. There will, in all of life, be these disappointments. And when you look at just those things from the perspective of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers, as you start to think through those things, you come to one of two conclusions. Either I need to have as much pleasure as I possibly can right now or 
or I need to spend a lot more time in meditation and make sure I'm pondering all the variables of life that I may do what is truly virtuous. Either way, you're putting a ton of pressure on yourself to squeeze as much out of life as you can, which if you're already depressed about all those disappointments and missed opportunities, then this is not good news. You're depressed, and now even more pressure is put on you to try to make it right. Paul says, don't grieve, guys. Don't sweat it. Don't mourn. This is going to be made right in the resurrection. There will be plenty of time in the time to come. That's what Paul is saying. You say, Pastor Josh, what does that really look like? I don't know exactly, but I can share some scripture with you. Go with me to Revelation chapter 20. When we are raised from the dead, there will not be a Satan prowling around on the loose. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Whether we're tempted and then we get into trouble because we've chased after those temptations or whether we just meet with the constant difficulties in life, you feel like there's somebody just constantly throwing up roadblocks keeping you from doing the things that you know the Lord would have you to do. That guy is gone. Revelation chapter 20, then I saw, verse 1, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the pit, and he shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life. They came back from the dead. As Paul would have said, they woke up. They weren't sleeping anymore. They came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead didn't come to life until the thousand years were ended. Those are the people who are dead, who truly have perished from this world because they have not hoped in Christ. But the focus of the passage is on those who have hoped in Christ. And John says in verse 6, Blessed and holy is the one who, notice this word, shares in the resurrection. The one who shares Christ's resurrection. The one who hopes in Jesus. The Bible tells us Jesus shares what is his with all those who hope in him. A part of that means suffering as Christ was brutally persecuted and tortured. He promises for all those who follow him that they will partake of the same. But as Christ comes back out of the tomb and conquers death, all those who hope in him will partake of the same. And there are slightly different views. I, probably slightly is an understatement. There are significantly different views regarding the end of the world. You know I am a millennialist. I believe in the reign of Christ on this earth. 
what I think Revelation in chapter 20 is teaching is that we will be brought forth from the grave to walk this earth before there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And I want you to know that that is a sweet, sweet promise. A couple of months ago, I was out here in the parking lot with Joe Riley and the former pastor here, Pastor Warren Trenholm, and we were chopping down that tree it was basically dying, and it was becoming a bit of a hazard, so we decided we wanted to go ahead and get rid of it. And as Pastor Warren and I were visiting and talking, he made the comment to me. He said, do you know who planted this tree? And I said, I, I don't know who planted this tree. And he said, George Daw planted that tree back in 1960. And I thought, isn't that just ironic? The pastor from 60 years ago that planted that tree has gone home to be with the Lord. One of the following subsequent pastors, Pastor Warren, he's still here, no longer shepherding this particular congregation, but he's chopping that tree down. Statistically, I have a good chance of outliving Pastor Warren. He's a little bit older than me, but all that to say, Pastor Warren will one day die. And one day I will die. The tree is dead. But unlike that tree, George Daw, Warren Trenholm, and Joshua Claycamp will walk this earth again. Together. Notice the expression in Revelation. We share in the resurrection. We share in it. It's not just mine, and it's not just yours. It's ours. The way that I understand the promise that we have is that there is a day coming. It has already been determined and appointed by God. It is held by Christ, who is the judge of the world. There is a day coming where all those of us who have hoped in Christ who look forward to his return, who have trusted in him as King of kings and Lord of lords, we will share together in his resurrection. We will share the resurrection. And what that means is there's a day coming in which I believe from the scriptures that me and many brothers and sisters will one day walk down Columbia Street once again. I read in the history books of George Raven, who back in 1890 opened up the room above his wagon wheel shop that a bunch of Baptists could meet there and worship and read the Bible together, and that was the start of First Baptist Church all the way back in 1890. And my understanding is that there's a day coming in which there will be more to be told than just this little paragraph in a history book, because I'll stand there right next to George Raven. And for those of you who have hoped in Christ, you will too. This city will change. They're going to build an 18 and 22 story high rise thing here behind us. Probably other things will change too before the Lord returns. We may not really recognize the city that we come back to in the resurrection. But we'll see each other, and we'll, we'll recognize each other, and we will rejoice together as one people, sharing together 
an eternal life if you hope in Christ. Which brings me to the third observation. I got to hustle. The resurrection is at the center of God's plan for history. And it's the foundation of our hope for our own resurrection. The times of ignorance, God overlooked, he says there. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. The Bible is telling us that God, he was not willing to execute speedy judgment. He restrained, he withheld himself in the hopes that we would hear the gospel, that we would hear of Jesus Christ. He has overlooked the times of ignorance, the times that have passed in which people did not know, but those times of overlooking are gone. Now he is explicitly clear through his church, through his missionaries. The word has sounded forth to the ends of the earth. There isn't a country that hasn't been touched by it at this point, and it is clear that he commands. He doesn't suggest It's not a mere invitation, but as Lord of Lords and King of Kings, he commands you to repent, which means he is calling on you to turn away from your own ideas and your own opinions of how you think life ought to be lived and that you will bow your head and bend your knee before the King of Kings, the only one that can save you, the only one that can give you life. Repent and trust in Jesus Christ. He is to be the object of your, fo- of your devotion, and he is to be the object of your worship because he is worthy. The book of Revelation says, worthy is the lamb, and he is worthy. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, makes this statement. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to God the Father's great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What Peter is saying there is that we have mercy. All the times of ignorance in which we were heaping up sins and incurring God's wrath and living in sin and rebelling against God, God now is prepared to forgive all of that. He is prepared to give us mercy because of what Jesus has done on the cross and because of the victory that Christ has accomplished, breaking the stranglehold of death. Mercy comes to us through the resurrection, church. It is not a passing hope, an idle wish, a fairy tale, or a dream that we dream. Peter says it's a living hope. Our hope is not an abstract concept. It's not a philosophy like the Stoics. It's not merely a pleasure like the Epicureans. It's a person. He's alive, and he is our living hope through Jesus and his conquering of the grave. Mercy can be granted to us. You can have it today. If you are here and you have never trusted in Jesus Christ, if you are still living your life to the fullest under the completely erroneous notion that you're going to die when you're 75 or 85 or 95, I want you to know life goes a lot further than that. It goes into eternity. And you do not want to spend that time apart from God because the only other place for people that exists in eternity, for people who have rejected Christ, is hell. 
when you've been there 10,000 years, you will not still be singing like we're singing in heaven. You'll be wishing that you could pass into non-existence because of the judgment and the pain that you know every day. If you would be spared from that, you must surrender to Jesus Christ. A number of years ago, John F. Kennedy's fire went out. You might not recall, John F. Kennedy was one of the presidents of the United States. He was assassinated in 1963, elected to office in 1960. His presidency was described as Camelot. It was in the eyes of the American public at the time, at least in the eyes of certain members of the voting American public at the time, it was considered to be the epitome of presidential governance up until that point. He was marveled in the world. He was admired. Uh, it was considered that he was one of the best presidents that ever lived. And, of course, he was horrifically, horrifically assassinated in 1963. They built a monument to him. They had a funeral service, state parade, the whole bit. And the monument that they built to him was a fire. And they called it the eternal flame, that it would never go out, that they would remain vigilant, that they would keep watch over his tomb until the end of the ages. By my count, it's gone out at least seven times. I don't know all of the different reasons. I've researched it, but over the last 60 plus, close to 60 years now, it's gone out five times, twice because of severe weather, twice uh, because of construction that had to happen. Another time, it was honestly admitted that they ran out of propane gas. They just forgot to order some more gas to keep it going. This eternal memorial the enduring flame that will never go out has gone out at least seven times that we know of. Recently, they had to shut it off because they were doing construction in Arlington National Seminary. Se seminary. Cemetery. And when the, when the flame was rekindled, when they turned, turned it back on, it was lit by the deputy assistant to the Navy. This is just a couple of years ago. The deputy assistant to the Navy. The, the deputy assistant to the secretary of the Navy. It was not the sitting president at that time who was President Barack Obama. It was not the vice president. It was not the speaker of the House. He didn't even rate John F. Kennedy, the greatest of all presidents, the one who ushered in Camelot, the one who is revered and celebrated. He didn't even rate the secretary of state. It was not the Secretary of Defense. It wasn't even the Secretary of the Navy. No, it was the assistant, the, the deputy to the assistant Secretary of the Navy who was tasked with the responsibility of rekindling his flame. You know what? It's still a blessing that we remember who John F. Kennedy is. It's a blessing that we haven't forgotten him. But we all can acknowledge and agree that when this man who was tragically assassinated, when his flame goes out, the world just simply doesn't care and doesn't pay attention anymore. Though in 1963, we swore with, with sincerity that we would keep this thing burning forever. Now it goes out and people are like, oh, it ran out of gas. Whoops. Church, Jesus Christ does not have a tomb with a flame. He does not need us to make sure 
that the propane is restocked. Jesus Christ does not need us to keep watch, and he doesn't need us to carry a flame for him. He doesn't need anyone to carry his flame. Jesus Christ is alive and well, and he carries his own torch. And you better know him because he is coming back. For Robert, see, I've already forgotten his name by the end of the sermon. For Robert Bowersaw, 1992 to 1985. He lays forgotten in a field overgrown with weeds, but he is beloved by Christ, which means someday we'll meet him. I hope you get to meet him, and you will if you trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just say thank you for the hope that we have of resurrection, to one day walk these streets again with your son, to be ransomed and rescued from the finality of death. God, thank you that this life is not all that there is. Thank you for setting us free. Lord, if there are any here this morning who have not trusted in you, I pray, God, that you would impress it upon their hearts. The time is short, and it truly is short for them to make a decision that will change their eternity. I pray, God, that you would impress it on their hearts by your spirit that the time for choosing you is short, but the time for regretting, rejecting you is eternal. Lord, help them to see that they can have life and have it abundantly because of your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. As you, are, as you are able, would you please rise and sing with us?
don't want to stop singing because it's so awesome. Solomon says, life is vanity. Everything under the sun is vanity. And as we just sang a few seconds ago, no, 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 life is great because Jesus Christ lives. I, uh, I'm asked sometimes, you know, do you have a bucket list or like what's going on there? I, I would like to go and see Israel. That's true. I'd like to tour Israel, but I don't sweat, sweat over it. Because if I don't see it before I die, then I'll just go see it when I resurrect. And uh, I've thought, even if I do see it this side of heaven, I'll still like to go see it the other side of heaven, because then I could have the Apostle Paul as my tour guide, right? Or Peter. Isn't that cool? There are many things waiting to be done, and we need to just spend this time right now making sure we know the Lord and that we're walking with him. I'd like to invite, speaking of someone who will be talked of by the angels in eternity, I'd like to invite uh, our chairman of the deacons, Mr. James Casson, to come close us in prayer this morning. Uh, this man has, you remember the Cognes, Everest and Rosalind Cognes? This man has looked after that family and has championed that family and cared for them alongside Pastor Al. And uh, just two weeks ago, was it two weeks ago now or last week? I don't remember the exact date. He, uh, he, packed up all of their things in his van, and he took them down to Qualicum Beach, where, they, where we can uh, report to you that they are 
in their new job in a beautiful, beautiful house, and God is blessing them. We say thank you to the Lord for that. And we say thank you to the Lord for James Casson. James, would you come and would you close our worship service in prayer this morning? Pray with me, church. Oh, Lord Jesus, I just thank you so much for your mercy to us. And I thank you for this word this morning that we, we trust in you and your resurrection. That we don't need to put our hope in this world where so much can change where we see all of the security and the strength that we thought we had easily shaken, Lord. Lord, I just pray for you to be with each one that's come together this morning. I thank you for each one that's listening online or watching online, listening on the radio, for each one of the brothers and sisters the world over who is worshiping you this morning the majority of whom we will not know until that day when you call us all to be with you. And we are raised and we see you, Lord. And we just look forward to that day and we say, Lord Jesus, come, come quickly. Thank you for this morning's worship service. I pray your blessing on each one and your protection on each one. We pray for your direction for our country, for our province, for our city, and for each member of our body here, Lord. Just thank you for each one, and I thank you also for Pastor Al and Sheila and their hard work for the Thumbnails, and that you have answered this prayer for, for them. We pray for you to bless them as they are now to worship you in a different local body, Lord, and we pray that you would draw them to one soon. I just thank you for your mercy, your provision, your answer of prayer, and this promise that you are coming again, Lord. And just thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.